That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. Welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Please understand that today is your opportunity to practice, learn and be clumsy. The goal is to start talking, so please speak freely and forgive yourself and others when being clumsy today. Those were the words of a trainer on a course called Race Education for Line Managers, run for senior staff of Lloyd's. And I bet you can guess what happened next to one of those employees, one of those managers who took that absolutely at face value and took it completely seriously. Welcome to That's Debatable. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing very well. And I do like the fact that we've started a couple of our episodes with uh, you saying, I bet you can guess what happened next, because isn't that isn't that so true in 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 so many of these situations that uh, uh, the way we are with the free speech world at the moment uh, our listeners can probably bet the way some of these <laughs> situations are going some of the tamest situations that we have but yeah no i'm doing very very well and uh, it's uh, a couple of weeks we're, we're going to have now where it's just you and me talking isn't it yeah we've had a really good run of of guests from the literary world, from publishing. Uh, I mean, overwhelmingly, the theme has been gender critical feminism and trans. That's a big chunk of the work that Free Speech Union is doing. We're not partisans within that debate, but our interest is in showing that that debate can take place. And lots of our casework, lots of our campaign work, and all the rest of it is nothing to do with the trans debate and, and concerns helping people who've expressed their views on all sorts of issues, whether it be in carbon literacy training, as we were talking about last week, or uh, about race, as in the case of the uh, the Lloyd's training that I that I mentioned a moment ago at the top of the episode. Um, and so this is this is a chap called Carl Borgnil, and uh, we've been helping him since he was fired in the aftermath of this of this training course uh, because he asked how he should manage people in his team who used the N-word. And unfortunately, in asking that question, he himself used the N-word. And for that, he was fired. But he came to the Free Speech Union. He has been at the Employment Tribunal over summer, and he's won his case. So he's got a fantastic result. And one of the, the components of his case, and this is something that comes up very frequently, um, things things in this area, is that he is dyslexic. And one of the effects of his dyslexia is that he can, he can speak in a way that is uh, perhaps blunter than you or I might. And so he used the N-word, which I will not use now, um, in, this, in this training course, in a context which entirely mitigates the the force of that word and the offence that word would would typically cause um so it's a good result for him but but of course going through that sort of process over such a long period of time is is immensely stressful and you would not wish that on anybody 
What was interesting when the case came in, uh, Ben, it came into the Free Speech Union not not that long ago, actually. I think uh, um, Carl was uh, obviously at his wit's end, having been dismissed, having lost his job because of this. It was really clear to the case handlers who saw it, just within a few hours of looking at the documents, that, that he had a very, very good case. Because, of course, the context which you allude to there, it, it, it was the safe space context again. It was, you, we're in yeah. a safe space, just as you open the episode. Say what you feel, be clumsy, you can make a mistake here. Uh, this is a safe space. And once again, the safe space becomes the most unsafe space. Because actually the question um, that Carl asked I think is a very reasonable question. It, it, the, the actual question was within um, uh, black communities, that word is used in rap, it's used in music, it's used in sort of reference to, to, to various subgroups, and uh, it's used all the time, incessantly. And you can hear it out and about. I mean, I live in the centre of London, and, and, and I can hear it in that context. And so it's not a bad question, actually. So how do I deal with this if it comes up as a manager? Because he was a senior manager at, at, yep. at Lloyds Bank. Um, his single error wasn't that he wasn't asking a decent question. His single error was was to have, to have in a moment, just a moment of absent-mindedness, to have used the nay, the, the sorry, the N word, in its in its fullness, and uh, very quickly saying, "Oh, sorry, didn't mean to do that." And and as I understand it, quite a few of the people on the uh, call kind of completely and utterly agreed with him that he didn't get an answer to that question. It was a reasonable question. He apologised for the way he worded it and he didn't get an answer to it. So Carl had worked at Lloyd's for 27 years and as a result of this one question in the context where he'd been told you can speak freely, which he took at face value, his career has been left in tatters and he's had to go through this grueling process of going to the employment tribunal but i remember that moment tom that you described when he first contacted us saying please can you help mm. i'm in this awful situation here's what's happened um and it was exactly as you described that looking over those documents it was abundantly clear that there was no justification for the course of action that that laws embarked on uh, one of the most ludicrous details of this case is that the trainer who was running this course first of all said please speak freely then carl asked his question she then berated him and then she she said that she was so upset as a result of this question being asked that she couldn't work for five days afterwards so <laughs> if if you wanted one anecdote that just captures the complete breakdown of emotional resilience and freedom of speech and common sense, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better example than this. I agree. But, I mean, honestly, and, and actually, wherever this has been um, published, I, I noticed that this is the detail that gets picked up in the comments under the, under the news items, and it's been picked up in various uh, news outlets. And the comments invariably say, a week? The trainer had to take a week off? It's, it's repeated again and again and again. And yeah, it's, the it's not really the response of someone who should be holding that, that role as a trainer 
in that environment, you're saying anything goes, we're here to work together, we're all grown-ups. Well, that reaction of uh, it, it, it is basically the reaction, as you say, of, of a toddler, really, jumping up and down and saying, oh, I don't like those hurty, hurty words. Uh, and I, I, yes, it's, it is probably of all the hurty words, it's the hurtiest hurty word, but it is just a word. Ben, do you remember what we used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words would never hurt me? I, ne I was never convinced by it completely because actually some of the worst moments in my life have been when words have hurt me. Words, words are powerful, which is perhaps why we, we talk about free speech so much because... Uh, words do matter. And Brendan O'Neill brings this out at the, the end of his book on heresy. He brings this out very clearly by saying the whole point of why we talk about free speech is because words are powerful. So I've completely contradicted myself there. <laughs> Sticks yeah, and stones that's break myself. <laughs> Self-refuting comment. But no, you, no you're right. <laughs> you're right. It, it, it's, it's not to say that words can't cause injury, but it, it's just it's giving that proper weight and viewing it with some sense of proportion. And that, among other things, is, is what so much of society, the corporate world, universities, seems to have forgotten, that sense of proportionality that, and the sense, in, in this case, particularly the sense of context. So using the N-word in most contexts is going to be something that most people would find terribly offensive. In this context, given the fact that he repeatedly apologised and given the fact that there was no malicious intent, that he was genuinely asking a sincere question about how he as a manager should respond to black colleagues, black members of his team, using that term. Um, but the reaction has been completely stripped from the context. And this is something, another thing we see very frequently, where if you use one of these words of power, one of these forbidden words, irrespective of what mitigating circumstances there are, irrespective of what the context is, merely by using this word, almost like an incantation or, or a word like it, you can lose your job. And I think one of the things that this reveals yet again is the fact that it's the basic unfairness of the woke worldview and the way it's imposed in the corporate world and in workplaces, because you don't know what you can't say. And so even if you go into that room, into that training course, you could go into it in a spirit of open-mindedness. You might not take a cynical approach to it when you walked into it. You could go in there with a completely open mind. You could respond to it. You could engage with it. You could be trying to think seriously and sincerely about how to reduce racism in society, how to manage these complicated issues in the workplace among, among members of your team. And even if you're doing all of that and approaching it with that attitude, you can still fall foul of these unwritten rules, these shifting sands of, of these woke speech codes. And, and shifting sands is, is such a, a good um, uh, image there, uh, Ben, because it's not just this word uh, that, that, that stands out there with, with the power, as you say, the power that it has to, to change the atmosphere in a room from, from a lovely summer's day like today to, to midwinter, just, just like that. Interestingly, there are words that sound like it that mean completely different things. So there is a word, I'm, 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 even, I'm not even going to say this, even though this word means something completely different. It means ungenerous with your money and time. It means being miserly. 
Yes. Um, but because of how that word sounds, and most of our listeners will know the word I'm talking about, because of the, how that word sounds, that word now you will not hear out and about. And in fact, I think most people have kind of implicitly realized that that word is now out of bounds as well, even though it is an entirely unrelated word that means something completely different. <laughs> it's now also been bound, bound because it has the same cadence or it has the same um, first two, two syllables. And you think, goodness me, so what are the rules? How, who wrote these rules? Where is the central ministry that's setting these, these, these rules? It, it, is, it is in the cultural air, isn't it? Isn't it, Ben? And, you, and you've got to have the apparatus and the filters switched on and the dials turned on to work out. I think you've described it before, is you've got to be really plugged into the middle-class sens sensibilities of our current society. Uh, and if you're not in that middle-class world if you are from a different background maybe maybe you know a, a, a someone who is has come over from a, an eastern european country in the last five or ten years you are at huge risk of floundering into these errors uh without without realizing that you were taking that risk in the first place uh so yeah the, these rules are are shifting shifting sands is the perfect description I think it's particularly true as well for people who are on the autistic spectrum or, in Carl's case, who have dyslexia of a type that, that manifests itself in this way. Um, I mean, the other point I'd make is I don't know if it's worse to have a list of forbidden words that you can't use, which, by the way, is something that we see quite frequently at about this time of year, September, October, from university departments. Almost every year, I think. Is that right? Well, no, in fact, I can say, certainly, every year we have had a, a news story where somebody has contacted the Free Speech Union because a handbook in their English department or their sociology department has been circulated, and it will say something like, uh, please don't use the word mankind, say, uh, humankind, right. and all, all that sort of thing, so um, stripping gender or, or traditional uh, gender practice language out of it, and also introducing... Um, nonsensical new words, neo-pronouns, and all the rest of it. Um, and so you get, I mean, I've seen several of these documents, you might get two or three pages, which is a list of words that your department, as a new student who's just arrived at a university, is telling you not to use. And there will always be a disclaimer saying something like, our knowledge about these issues is evolving, this list is not exhaustive, uh, and so on. So you can have that approach where you know at the outset these are the forbidden words and you're not allowed to use them. Um, and that's bad enough. But then the alternative is that, is that you don't know what the forbidden words are and you are blindfolded walking over a minefield. I don't know what's worse. Neither, neither, neither option is particularly palatable. Well, it's both, I think, is worse. It's both that we have a list of words that are banned and we have institutions writing these words up and we have uh, local authorities uh, going around streets and taking down street names that don't fit with that new list of words. Pretty much, they're going to be have to be out on the road every single term now to take down all the street names and probably take down the replacement street names because, of course, uh, if they take the first set of street names away by by next season, the second street of uh, second set of street names will be out of date. So that that that's on the on the one hand. And also at the same time, the sort of the invisible. Are you on the inner circle? Are you in the elite? Are you 
the culturally aristocratic group uh, who have the unwritten rules, the slightly more um, ceremony, no, not, not, that's not the right, right word, so the, the, mis- the mystical uh, movement of words coming into this band or, or, or new words that you now have to use. I think it's worse when it's both. And I feel like we have both of those paradigms uh, working working right the way through. I mean, when you said mankind, it just reminded me of that Justin Trudeau clip uh, in yes. Question Time where someone said, you know, mankind's done this. And he stopped them. Stop them. I don't think anyone remembers what the original question was and says, I think you'll find we say person kind now. What a, what a, what a people, people kind, was it? Is that right? Or people and I think, kind. Yeah, I, I'm, exactly. I'm sure he said this to a woman, by the way. I'm sure it was a woman who'd asked this question and said mankind and, and that he'd said you should say people kind. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Um, gosh. Yeah. Well, we're waiting to see, but I think final note probably on Carl's case is that, is that we're waiting to see what the payout is going to be. We're hoping it will be substantial. Certainly that's what we think he deserves after 27 years of unblemished service with always. So we'll see, and hopefully we'll have that news very soon. Um, and now we're going to go, I think, to Finland, aren't we, Tom? And the story of the, yes. uh, the MP there who's being prosecuted. Yes, we are. This is, a <laughs> um, this is another story which I think is going to... Uh, I was going to say, not surprise our listeners, which means prepare, prepare yourself, get ready for, for a fairly shocking situation. Um, and, I, and, and my Finnish pronunciation, I should apologise for as, as well. But um, Pevi Rasenen, I think that is probably not the way that name is pronounced. Uh, she's a doctor, a long-standing MP, and she was actually a former interior minister. And And all of this started back in 2019 when police opened an investigation into her for incitement against a minority. And it was based upon three things. The, the accusation against um, uh, uh, Pava was uh, based on three things. First of all, it was based on a tweet in which she asked why the Lutheran Church sponsored a Pride event. Secondly, it was based on a debate in which she said, God intends us to be straight. And thirdly, it was based on a booklet that she wrote nearly 20 years ago uh, that argued that homosexuality is a developmental disorder. And she was investigated at that time. Uh, The Finnish police said, you know what? No crimes being committed. Uh, But, and this is a key person in the story, the prosecutor general decided that um, it w- she needed to be charged anyhow. So she went to court. And thankfully, the judges decided in her favour. But this prosecutor wouldn't take no for an answer. And a strange thing, I don't think it quite works like this in England uh, or in Scotland. Um, obviously, the two legal systems that in, in there. But the prosecutor brought the case back via appeal. And the, the worrying thing is that if uh, Rosenen is found guilty, she could face jail. And, and, and going back to what she's being faced jail, she's expressed an opinion, she's expressed a view on the, the whole area of homosexuality and the whole area of pride. And um, now she is potentially uh, going to jail for that. So it was, it, it, it's quite an astonishing uh, set of 
things that have happened. She's, the police said there was nothing to investigate. She was um, investigated and, and, and acquitted, but now she's, she's being investigated almost, as it were, for a third time. And it, it seems like, um, yeah, it, it seems odd that it's been pursued to this extent and so relentlessly pursued by the prosecutor in Finland. But the trouble is that Finland is close enough to home uh, yes, it's another jurisdiction, but it's close enough to home that it will potentially spread across uh, other areas, other jurisdictions. These these cases get watched, the arguments get listened to, and they can get applied in you know Germany or Denmark or Sweden or Norway. And before we know it, it's an English court that is making the same kinds of argument. And talking about England... You know, think about what's happened here. We had a street preacher arrested in 2019. Uh, this year, a Tory councillor uh, said that he lost his job after tweeting that pride is a sin. And then Anthony Stevens, a totally different Tory councillor, tweeted his sympathy uh, for, 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 for these people and was in turn uh, arrested for an alleged hate crime. So it, it's already here, this um, approach to criticising pride criticizing homosexuality, criticizing um, things and coming from a Christian perspective, it's already leading to people being arrested or having the threat of being arrested. And so this case in Finland is very, very important because it will have a, a frosty effect in England, I imagine. One thing it reminded me of was the insistence on the prosecutor in Finland, of, of going back and, and pursuing this case even after the first attempt had failed. It reminded me of the Robin Hood Airport case from 2012, which I'm sure many listeners will remember. It was a guy called Paul Chambers who had taken to Twitter, as then was, and made a joke about uh, blowing the airport sky high. And ultimately, he was vindicated. But before that happened, he was prosecuted by the CPS and it was alleged in The Guardian that despite the CPS deciding internally that this case wasn't worth their time and despite sending papers to him saying we're not going to pursue this any further, that, and I'll quote directly from the article, this was written in 2012, at the last minute, the Director of Public Prosecutions, former human rights lawyer Keir Starmer, overruled his subordinates, it is alleged. And to prosecute somebody for making a joke on Twitter, admittedly in poor taste about blowing up Robin Hood, Robin Hood Airport, just goes to show, I think, exactly that prosecutorial mentality that this Finnish MP is up against. And I think your your point as well about the um, the contagion of this this approach to to speech and to uh, biblical whether it's biblical quotes, whether it's poor taste jokes on Twitter or whatever. Um, it really is a contagion that's spreading. And I think we, when we, was, when we were speaking to um, Free Speech Ireland about the, the hate speech law that, that's being considered there, you can just see how there's a kind of arms race between <laughs> Western democracies to kind of come up with the stupidest piece of hate speech legislation. Um, and this seems to be very much in that tradition. Well, Ireland's a really interesting example. We we did talk with Free Speech Ireland a few episodes ago, and 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 the the, f the terrifying thing about that piece of legislation is that's not just hate speech; it's pre-crime. 
it, it's uh, prosecuting people, going into people's homes, finding what's on their devices, finding what's um, you know maybe even in their in their on their bookshelves before anything's happened. And not only the person that the police are investigating, but anyone under that roof can also be investigated. It's, it's Minority Report. Yeah. Great film. Great film. Tom Cruise film. Didn't really understand it. Had to watch it twice. Um, <laughs> That's uh, embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite slow then. That's embarrassing. Well, we, we should yeah. delete that in order to... We should uh, delete that. Yeah, Tom, yeah. Tom couldn't follow the plot. <laughs> um, yeah, but the, the whole idea of pre-crime uh, is, is what, was what permeates through that, that film. And I think at one point Tom Cruise has to change his eyes, which was... Yeah, anyway, that, that wasn't... That, I didn't know how that linked with anything. But... Um, yeah, the idea of pre-crime is utterly hideous, and in fact, fact that you know, even those who were worried about speech laws and hate laws coming in um, uh, would would never have anticipated we could get to a point where pre-crime uh, could could get onto the statute books. And going in the other direction, Ben, it's got me thinking about speech laws uh, or, or, or you know hate laws, hate hate crime. And where and how and when they came from. My, my personal view, I've always been very suspicious of the idea of hate crime. You know, crime is crime. If you murder someone, if you mug someone, anything like the, new, you know, the Ten Commandments, the, the classic uh, burglaring, bu- bu- <laughs> burgling, murdering, the, the, the classic crimes. They are crimes, whether they are done for hateful reasons or they're not. And premeditation is an important exception to that. I, 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 I understand there are always going to be important exceptions to that. I've been very suspicious of speech crime and hate crime. And um, it reminded me of when Rowan Atkinson, back in 2006, took a stand at the time the Labour government at the time was bringing the Racial and Religious Hatred Act of that year. And I think, I think that was actually a moment. And although that was a win in the the worst clauses within it were overturned. I think it was overturned in the Lords, actually. The Commons wanted to push through um, quite a few articles in that Act that would have, as it were, outlawed most of the Quran and most of the Bible. Um, The Lords ultimately managed to overturn some clauses in it, and that was a victory. That was a victory for free speech all that time ago. But still that law got onto the statute books. And I think that may well have been the turning point where this idea of hate speech uh, and hate crime just became part of our, our linguistic um, reality from that point. So that, that, for me, felt like a turning point. I don't know what, 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 whether it did for you, Ben. Well, interestingly, a few years ago, I think it must have been during lockdown, I was re-watching The West Wing, which is very much of its time, late 1990s, liberal high summer. And one of the plot threads that that runs, I think, over a few episodes is a debate that the White House staff, so this is of a fictional Democratic administration, for those who've not watched it, um, and the White House staff are debating exactly these questions, hate speech laws, and so on. And there is a genuine and quite acrimonious divide among the characters in the programme who are all from a liberal left political tradition about whether hate speech, hate speech laws are a, um, are a threat to freedom of speech under the American Constitution 
um, or whether it should be part of a criminal justice system and so on. But of course, the West Wing now is basically a historical document. It's a piece of social and political history and it shows this sort of liberal utopianism of the 1990s. And also, I, I think, the arrogance of that period as well. So mm. it's not aged well. The writing's still brilliant, the acting's superb and all the rest of it. But I thought that was quite interesting as a, as a historical artefact that in the 1990s that was still something that would have divided people. On so the there was a lively debate still happening culturally in the 90s about whether there was such a thing as um, hate hate speech, for example, and, 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 and then whether that needed to be uh, criminalised in some shape or form. And so maybe, we're, would you agree that it's sometime in the early 2000s that the, this kind of became a genuine thing uh, that people or, or even authorities were taking more seriously and implementing and saying, yes, there is now such a thing as hate speech. And, and also, of course, maybe a very important moment was the Stephen Lawrence case and the report into yeah. that that talked about institutional racism in the Metropolitan Police, uh, which uh, led to a lot of the motivation for crime coming into discussion. <clears throat> it wasn't just what I said earlier about murder or, or, or burgling people. It was, okay, does this come from a racially motivated place? And then you combine that with the uh, 2006 legislation and suddenly you've got all the bits of the puzzle coming together for hate speech to be uh, uh, alive and well. And, 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 and worse than that, very, very socially accepted and culturally accepted. Because just, you know, cards on the table, I don't think there should be such a thing as hate speech. I think there should be crime. And I think that, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, free speech absolutism. And I'm not a free speech absolutism. I don't think there should be incitement to violence. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kind of undoing some of what we talked about in previous episodes. All I'm saying is that this whole idea of hate speech, hate crime, is far too close in my mind to thought crime. And the very fact it's got that far in Ireland with pre pre-crime, uh, I think it's, it, it, it just needs to be rolled right the way back and we get back to basics. Horrible phrase, brings me back, hideous. Work back um, to the 90s again. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it takes me straight back to John Mage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a disaster. So I'm trying to find a different phrase to explain it. But yeah, you I know, think there's no back to the basics of what crime is. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think in terms, in terms of the history of this, I, I've, this is not my area of expertise, but I have a friend who is doing some research into the hate speech laws of Weimar Germany, which is quite interesting. Um, so mm. I'll have to speak to him. It may, I mean, that might be quite an interesting podcast episode on its own, actually, um, or, or a segment. So I think it, it does go further back. But when you get to the 90s, you say you have the McPherson Report and Stephen Lawrence. And then I think as well, you have 9-11 and the great fear among... Western governing classes about a backlash against Muslims and Islamophobia mm. or anti-Muslim bigotry is a term I, I very much prefer. So I think all of those things go into the swell. Then you have social media and it, that is an accelerant for all of these trends. So I think that's how we, we got to this position. I think in terms of uh, your point about, about there's just crime, I can see that 
it seems to me a position of common sense that certain types of crime within the same category can be worse than, than one another. So that someone's motive, a murderer's motive, that could be an aggravating factor in a crime. And yeah. that might be something that then merits a more severe penalty. Not that the British justice system hands out severe penalties very frequently. So... <laughs> I can, I can see that. The trouble, though, of course, is that we're not talking about the idea of a murderer being motivated by racism as being an aggravating factor. I, I think that's... I don't have an objection to that. Um, but when, when we're talking about speech, when we're talking about a threshold that, that, that's so far removed from murder or aggravated assault or GBH or whatever, when we're talking about speech, talking... Yeah posting things on social media. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But what what I find is such an interesting dynamic, um, in, in many ways the last 25 years, uh, and it's incredible to think it's that long already, is, a, is an experiment in the introduction of speech laws, hate laws, wh whatever you, whatever you uh, term them as. Uh, initially introduced as don't worry, yeah, as, as ever, don't worry, this is not going to change the the feeling of, of, of Britain, it's, it's not, that's not the intention, this is just to protect the most vulnerable groups. And it's been an incredible experiment. But what's happened in practice isn't just that it's crept in the way that we feared it would, and hate speech has grown and grown and grown as a category. I think you could almost argue that it's become an area and a type of crime that, that, that the, the criminal and the justice system has become obsessed with so much that it's it shrunk the attention that uh, true you know, murder, burglary, um, all the things that, that really do hurt people in society, that's had less attention, certainly is perceived to have a lot less attention. While this discussion has grown and the reality has grown around hate speech, until now we are, we're, we're talking every week about situations where the actual crime is not being dealt with, but the hate speech is. It's the first thing the police officers are off to arrest you for, because that is where, where it's gone. So it's not just that it's crept, it's crept and overbalanced the core sort of criminal justice reality of where the country should be, arguably. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, and, and I may well be wrong on that, but that's how it feels in a lot of our discussion, and it's how it feels in a lot of the cases that we're dealing with. Is that a fair assessment do you think ben I, I feel like we're always slacking off the police because every week brings some <laughs> fresh idiocy from some chief constable or some mad decision to arrest an autistic teenager or hand out a non-crime hate incident so there's so much rubbish and nonsense that comes out of british policing nowadays but i do i do think and hope that the majority of serving police officers must roll their eyes and quietly tut at, at these developments just as any other member of the public would. But the point I'd make is that I think the nature of British policing has changed in this period as well. So all of these trends are are intermingling with each other to some extent, but, but we've gone from a system of bobbies on the beat to a system of graduate police officers who, you know, perhaps are just more likely to share the types of values of people who are really concerned about people saying nasty stuff on the internet. And also the, these crimes... Looking, looking through someone's tweets, that, that's quite easy to solve that, isn't it? From the perspective yeah. of a police officer, whereas, whereas turning up to someone's house, they don't have a CCTV camera, there's been a burglary, there's no real lead to follow or there are and you just can't be bothered. 
that's quite difficult. Or it, or it means getting away from the desk. So maybe that's part of it. Well, it's interesting. I think that perhaps we've always had a high view of certain parts of our cultural furniture. So the, the police force and the NHS are the two things that occurred to me. We've had a high view of those parts. We, we've, we've been proud of our police force. We're proud of our NHS. Uh, and therefore, we're reluctant to, to take on board the fact that the same trends we see elsewhere, where this new generation of um, people who are, who are not very tolerant are going into the workplace generally, that they're also, of course, they're going into the police force. Of course, they're going into the NHS. And in some ways, the higher it's like, uh, you know, the higher, the higher you are, the further you fall. Uh, and it's taking us a lot to realize that actually even, even our police force um, has fallen foul of this. And as we know, the NHS is, has, has, has got this everywhere with all the new policies that are being rolled out and some of these events in, in, you know, in, in, in women's wards where, uh, you know, that, no, there couldn't have been a rapist in this ward. This is a women's ward. Uh, this is happening yeah. in the NHS. And it's taking a lot for us to take on board the fact that this might be happening with these cherished institutions. Well, I just give a trigger warning that this is my personal view and not the corporate view of the Free Speech Union. But I, I think the point you make about the NHS is particularly noteworthy because the NHS has been absolutely walled off from criticism within public debate. I mean, any politician who wants to go anywhere or do anything or achieve anything has to genuflect at, at the altar of the NHS. That's the only way. Mm. And I, I think, I mean, per, my personal experience with the NHS has been that, that, that pretty often it, it's quite shambolic. I don't mm. share the nation's reverence for this model of, of healthcare. Um, I don't want to go off on a, on a sort of political rank. That's not what what people are listening to this for. Oh, but the point there goes of, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the point I'd make is that I, I think holding institutions that are as mundane as healthcare systems and the police, um, and and genuflecting before them and making them above ordinary political debate, placing them above criticism and scrutiny. I think it's just a disastrous idea. And I think we're, we're really, as a country, now reaping the consequences of that. And I think it just shows the importance, actually, of having a culture of free, express, free expression and bluntness that is unfortunately something that is somewhat contrary to the English system of manners. So it, it's perhaps more difficult for England than for other countries. Um, but I think, that's a really, I think that's a really harmful thing. And I think it's it, it certainly happened with the healthcare system where, where it's just completely immune from any kind of criticism. I think it's a really powerful point. Something we don't think about much with free speech, is it? We think of free speech in terms of the individual's right to free speech, which, of course, is, is absolutely um, yeah. a huge part of it. But also the importance of free speech culturally and institutionally. And the fact that if you if you take free speech out of the equation, not only are individuals crushed because they can't say what's on their mind and they, they suppress it, but institutions are also ruined because no one can can say what they think about the institution. And in some ways, that's even harder because the, the, then you've got a power dynamic. The institution and the leaders of the institution are powerful people and they will come at you in, a, in an environment where free speech is frowned upon or in an environment where free speech is unusual. And I think it's, it's an area I'd like to do more thinking about, actually, because we, we focus so much on the individual 
actually the wider ramifications of what uh, an absence or a suppression of free speech means for the cultural institutions uh, is is very interesting as well. It's very interesting as well. It's it's something I hadn't hadn't really thought about in that way till you till you said it, Ben. Well, I think British democracy has basically become a room full of people who are all very similar to each other and all are uh, misled by the same biases that they share. So even if they're in different political parties, I think that they're basically coming at the, the world and political questions from the same broad perspective. And what you need within any institution is a Team B, what the CIA had in the 1970s. So you need a Team B that takes the same evidence that the institution as a whole is looking at and comes to its own conclusions, conducts its own analysis, offers its own assessment of a situation. Um, otherwise, you end up with groupthink. And I think that's what we, that's what we have in, in, in so many areas of society, so many institutions. We just have this stifling groupthink. But the problem, though, there is how do you ensure the Team B is independent? It, it's like that whole who guards the guards. It's a version of that problem, whereby the, the power dynamic, the politicians who carry... Uh, the the power and the influence can say to team A, we're kind of expecting you to come up with this conclusion. Go next door and say to team B, we're kind of come expecting you to yeah, come well, up with this conclusion. I mean, this doesn't need to be literal. I mean, a good example would be the pandemic response. So basically, the entire political establishment agreed with a system of lockdowns and all the rest of it. And I really don't want to go into that particular debate. People have lots of different views about that who listen to this podcast. But... I still think in that type of situation, you need a team B. That doesn't, that's not literally a group of, of, um, uh, of civil servants or something who are working um, to come to different conclusions. It's just a team B in society. There has to be some alternative voice um, yeah. just making sure that we've come collectively to the right decision. The version I think of is adversarial. So exactly. So it's the, uh, the, the House of Commons, I think, remains a place of debate. And I come back to it a lot because the benches face each other. They're sword width apart, sword sword length yeah. apart. That they're set up that way in order to have everything out on the table and argued and and prime minister's question to be a rowdy time yeah. because it's adversarial. Similarly, with our court system, there is a defence and there is um, a prosecution. And the prosecution goes for one set of arguments in one direction, and the defence goes for another set of arguments in another direction. And for that reason, I don't think it's just a coincidence that when we talk about culturally what's fallen and what hasn't fallen, what hasn't fallen has been the House of Commons, although it's had its moments of, of, of groupthink, it has re redefined itself. And, and, and an election, a clear-out, you suddenly get, uh, it re gets revitalised. And I think, from a free speech perspective, the thing we're missing is a First Amendment. Uh, and yep. I'm not saying UF politics is working either. <laughs> you know, it's basically an old people's home at the moment when you go up to, uh, to D Washington, D.C. on both sides of the aisle. It seems there are, there are people who really should not be working anymore. Well, it's, it's more like a morgue than an old people's home sometimes, Tom. <laughs> It just seems cruel. Some of it just seems cruel. Anyway, that's a different discussion. My, my, my free speech argument here is that the First Amendment, and when I read it, I was astonished at it. And you compare it with Article 10. I mean, the, it's just, it's, it's night and day compared with Article 10, which uh, 
uh, it, you know, it says free speech, but the qualifications are, are, are quite involved. The First Amendment says free speech. It doesn't have a but. It just says free speech. And, and uh, we don't have a written constitution. I don't know how we get there. And I don't know whether, whether we really want it because it would no. upset all sorts no, of ways in which England works and Scotland works and the Union and everything. But uh, the First Amendment is a very, very powerful, positive thing for free speech. So there's, there's a positive thing. Yes. But again, trigger warning, this is my own personal view. Um, let's please God not have a written constitution because it, it would it would freeze in time the stagnation we we currently have and just as America is is a kind of weird version of 18th century British politics that sort of sailed off into the ocean and becomes stuck there um, if we had a written constitution now it would it would preserve the pretty dire cultural moment we're in now and our descendants centuries from now would still be arguing about pronouns so i think i think the fight goes on mm. and mm. i think a, I, I think a, yeah i think a written constitution would 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 be such a dangerous thing i think that was uh, a really interesting discussion and i think that's probably all that we've got for this episode isn't it ben have you got anything else uh, that you'd add to this episode no, I think not. We'll see you next time. And yes. hopefully the Free Speech Union will be putting out news about Carl's case soon when he gets that. And um, yeah, I think goodbye for now. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.